unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today, man? Nathan, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, and I'm looking at the show notes for this week's episode, and (laughs) you often talk about the need for having lawyers go over your (laughs) <laughs> the claims that you make in your in your copy and that's the first thing that comes to mind when i look at the title of this week's episode oh yeah the copywriting secrets of the national Enquirer. well fortunately i got receipts but um let's uh let's do this i saw this article on slate.com just a couple months ago whatever happened to the national Enquirer? it says You know, for years, the Inquirer was a go-to resource for many copywriters, including me. And I'm quoting from this article on Slate. For decades, the Inquirer's circulation was in the millions, then the article says. But in recent times, they're quoting uh, journalist Lloyd Grove from the Daily Beast. Its circulation consistently plunged year after year. Grove blames the Internet for the Inquirer's death spiral. Uh, it couldn't speed up to adjust to the rhythm of the internet, among other things. And there's a lot of political intrigue behind what happened too. But what's most interesting to me is not all that, not the recent stuff, but the Inquirer before its fall. It's what I learned from it back in the day, how those lessons apply so powerfully to copywriting even today. And another thing that applies powerfully to copywriting today, of course, is this. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear in this podcast. And most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims, and if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health and finance and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Okay, so... One reason I liked the Inquirer so much was that they published a story about me. Hmm, I was not aware of that. Yeah, they did. 1998. And um, my copywriting business has really taken off since I started reading the Inquirer, said David, owner of Overnight Marketing, my old business name whose clients include such corporate giants as IBM, MCI, and United Airlines before I saw the light and stopped working with publicly traded companies. I read each issue twice, once professionally to get a sense of what people are interested in and once to be reminded of how to write in an emotionally compelling way, and also because it's fun to read. Now, the headline for the story was particularly interesting. What does the headline say? I owe my success to the Inquirer, says leading ad exec. (laughs) Uh, Personally, I didn't get all upset about the fact that I never said that to them and that they twisted the story. I didn't get upset, but my mother did. (laughs) You don't owe your success to them. You owe it to me, she bellowed. (laughs) Thankfully, mom got over it because the fact that they 
And besides the fact that they gave me nice press coverage, the main reason I liked the Inquirer so much was their approach to writing. And that's what I want to talk about today. But I want to say something else first. One really great thing about the Inquirer back in the day was that reading it let you sort of take the temperature of popular culture. And I stopped reading it a few years ago because the content changed. First, it became too political and in a really nasty way. And secondly, they stopped doing what was known in-house as aspirational stories, anything positive or inspiring, even if it was off the beaten track. They used to do that a lot. They don't do that anymore. They hardly do it. So it stopped being fun to read. So I, I want to say that the copywriting secrets of the National Enquirer about our secrets from the National Enquirer of days gone by, lessons that are still valid and valuable for copywriters today. This is something that's plagued a lot of written media over the last few years. Um, there's, there's an old saying, politics is downstream from culture. But now politics and culture seem to almost be at a, at a neck and neck tie and, and intermingled in everything. And this is a big reason why I've stopped reading comic books, because they have stopped being fun to read and they've just become about po pushing political agendas and YA novels have kind of gone down this path. It's not just the National Choir. It seems like a lot of publications of all different kinds of written medium have decided that politics is more important than being entertained. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a travesty. It's, it's one of the sad things about our, our era that uh, I, hope, I hope maybe will be corrected sometime in the near future. Well, you know, Life keeps changing. Um, I saw, I don't know if it was you who told me about it. Um, were you the one who told me about God Sod in, in the yeah, interview? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's a professor, um, a scientist. And he said that these days, that a lot of, you know, the political correctness or the uh, woke uh, politics movement has actually affected academic science. So if you're, say, going to study metallurgy, um, of a particular compound or, or of, of metal, um, and you want to get funded and you need to, you're applying for a grant, you have to say in the grant what you did to promote diversity in your department before the grant and what you plan to do using the grant to promote diversity. So everything's become real political these days, it seems. Um, except the copywriters podcast, we just focus on. <laughs> copy and all kinds of weird stuff. I guess we talk about politics a little bit, not much. So I want to cover three things that I thought were great from the old Inquirer. First, headlines. Uh, secondly, a specific way they put stories together. And third, writing secrets at the most basic level. So headlines, the, how did the headlines connect to the copy? Razor thin. The story and the headline were often connected by the tiniest of threads. You'll notice that um, in, in this story that they wrote about me, I owe my success to the Inquirer. They don't really cover that very much in the story. That was just a hook. What they talk about is how I read it, why I read it, who I am, 
you know, why I like the Enquirer, but not really how it helped me succeed. Very thin. And um, I'll, I'll give you a hypothetical example that might make it a little simpler to understand. An example not from the Enquirer, but how you might do it if you were, you know, an editor at the Enquirer writing a headline for a story. The headline might be, Man Finds Gold Treasure in Backyard, right? And this could be a story about a guy who found a vault full of gold bars on his property. That's kind of what you'd imagine with a headline like that. But it would actually be about how a man's wife had lost a family heirloom, a gold-plated bracelet years ago while she was gardening, and the man actually accidentally turned it up while digging through the soil to get rid of weeds. So you'd read about the family history of the bracelet. Maybe it was a gold-plated bracelet. Maybe it was today worth all the $100. But it came over on the wrist of a great-grandmother on a ship from Europe in the 1890s. So what it lacked in monetary value, it made up for in sentimental value. Okay, and the story might be interesting or heartwarming. The headline would definitely get your attention and draw you in. And it wasn't totally on the up and up because it was misleading, but it didn't do anyone any harm. And you just, you know, had this feel good um, response of um, a family connected with its ancestors um, through a bracelet by the end of the story. And that was that. Now, here's the thing back in the day, and I'm not even sure this is entirely true today, but back in the day, that kind of headline would never have passed muster in the mainstream newspapers and magazines that I spent the first part of my career working for as a reporter and an editor before I became a copywriter. So reading The Inquirer was a good transition to copywriting for me, even though it wasn't you know, exact instruction. Um, I need to take what they were doing with a grain of salt and not use what I learned in the wrong way. I, I also want to say that as a publication back in the day, a lot of people thought the Enquirer was about as low as you could go. And that really depends on how you look at it, because in the world of tabloids, the opposite was true. The Enquirer was actually at the top of the food chain. The stories were outrageous, and yes, a lot of the headlines were misleading. But the fact-checking on the stories themselves was meticulous, more meticulous than some newspapers. And there was a practical reason for that. Um, they weren't, you know, uh, just trying to set a standard for journalism. The reason they did that was they were always warding off lawsuits from people they wrote investigative stories about. And the main uh, reason for someone to be con convicted of libel or slander was malicious or reckless disregard for the truth. Well, if you fact check everything, there's nothing might be malicious, but it's not reckless. Okay. Uh, and in fact, point of fact, most of the reporting was highly accurate. I know that's hard to believe, but after you got past the headline, the writing style, it was. So if the inquirer was at the top of the food tabloid food chain, what was at the bottom? There's a newspaper called the Weekly World News. Mm. Here's a real headline from that. Man eats own head. I mean, how is that even possible? I remember the Weekly World News, and 
Yes, that's that's very in line with what I remember about them. Yeah, but you know, people like that kind of stuff. Maybe some people even like to believe that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's that's the first thing, the the headlines. So there there's like two aspects to it. One is how outrageous and attention getting they were. And that's good. But the second thing is that very thin thread that connects them to the content. And in these days of heightened compliance and sensitivity, you really got to be careful about having a non-deceptive connection with your headline. Do you have a problem with Kindle books? I do. Sometimes I really just want to hold a book in my hand so I can turn the pages and highlight stuff and make notes. That's one reason I recently released the print version of my book, Breakthrough Copywriting. And listen to this. On Facebook, I've gotten pictures posted from around the world. Pictures of people holding their printed copy of Breakthrough Copywriting in their hands, including one from an A-list screenwriter and marketer in L.A.'s famous Topanga Canyon. He was reading the book in his hot tub. Breakthrough Copywriting is a great book for you, whether you are a beginner or an A-lister yourself or anywhere in between. It costs a tiny, tiny fraction of my $5,000 a head seminar that the book is based on. So check out Breakthrough Copywriting on Amazon.com. Now, back to the show. A lot of times, the National Enquirer, it wasn't usually placed in the magazine section of the store. It was usually placed in the impulse items section. So it was one of those things where it was like you were getting ready to check out. You had been fighting with people all for the last 45 minutes in the grocery store. The last thing that you wanted to do was give an additional attention or critical information, gathering energy to something. And while Everything else there was like lighters and candy bars. And then there was the National Enquirer. And so they had a, somehow they were able to stand out and get sales in an area where none of their competition was able to grab the attention like they were able to do. I I just thought that was an interesting, uh, maybe psychological or for some sort of reason, they were not usually placed where magazines were placed. They were usually placed in the impulse section. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think, especially on their covers, you know, it's interesting. You said there were candy and lighters and impulse items. It was sort of like reading candy. You got that same sugar high just, just from reading it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so the next part is how the stories were written. Um, so one important style point was that the stories would focus on one topic rather than packing in as much loosely related information as possible, the way most newspapers did in maybe the name of being thorough or fair or balanced or complete or objective. These days, the, the act of focusing on just one thing is known as the law of one among many top copywriters. The Inquirer didn't invent it, and I am at a loss to say whether or not other copywriters learned this from the Inquirer, but many good copywriters go to great lengths to carefully choose the best thing to focus on, one really important thing, and then they stay focused on that. This ends up meaning 
lots of repetition and mindless repetition, rote repetition, R-O-T-E, rote repetition can be extremely boring. But the inquirer avoided being boring by using the same idea that Doug Pugh introduced us to from music a few episodes back. And that idea is variation on a theme. You take the same idea and present it differently enough so it's still familiar, but it's not boring to your reader or listener because there's some variety. Now, this goes way back uh, 21 years when I recorded my first copywriting product. One of my students was a newspaper reporter. Um, So she was a skilled writer and skilled in recognizing writing techniques. And her name was Jane. Jane had a daughter in middle school at the time. And during our class, when I was extolling the virtues of the National Enquirer to her, remember, the regular newspaper reporter, and during the class, she pointed out that she and her daughter had noticed something similar in the Enquirer to when her daughter was studying Shakespeare for homework. And so Ophelia, this character in Hamlet, who is a noblewoman, so you can assume Ophelia was written by Shakespeare to be well-spoken. and. Jane mentioned that Jane and her daughter had noticed in Ophelia's speeches, Ophelia would cover the same point a few times in different ways in one speech. Same thing, right? Law of one. And I bring this up for a couple of reasons. The first one is that's the way most people talk in real life. They repeat themselves. That's what they do. What do they do? They repeat themselves when they talk. Especially when they're relaxed and they don't think they're being graded by a teacher or a boss or the media or Wall Street. I'm being concise. Okay. The second reason I brought it up is Shakespeare was writing for performance of his plays in front of mass audiences. He knew some audience members, for whatever reason, might need to hear the same thing a few times before they got the point. So. As you can see, the Inquirer, by using this writing technique, was a lot more sophisticated than most people realized. But they were no Shakespeare. (laughs) Uh, I'm reminded of an old writing rule. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, people don't pay attention to that as much as they should. They, They pay attention more to the unspoken academic rule that um, cover your ass, cover it twice, cover it three times, don't leave anything out, make sure that no one can accuse you of ignorance about the tiniest, most irrelevant detail. (laughs) That's true. So uh, what's the third point that we're going to cover today? Okay. The third thing is some, some, this is really tactical. These are basic level writing secrets of the National Enquirer. That will really help with copy. Besides the irresistible headlines, which we talked about as secret number one and the smart story structure, secret number two, that made every article give you the experience of watching a scene in a movie. There were four writing secrets they used to keep you engaged and keep the stories compelling. And they're hardly secrets because they've been known for years, but since so many people don't use these very often, I think you could say that they're secrets. They're not that hard to use. You just have to remember them. Okay, so the first one is short words. 
always use a short word when you don't absolutely positively have to implement a polysyllabic locution. Short words. <laughs> okay. You drove that point home, David. <laughs> ah, yeah. Thank you. Um, the second, third, and fourth ones I like to remember as a group. I call them the three V's, visceral, visual, and vivid. Visceral means you can feel it in your body, whether it's an ache, a tingling, a warm, satisfying feeling, sharp pain, whatever it is, all of those are visceral. And if you, if you can work that into, you know, how, how you're, you, you know, feeling, even, even to the, the, the point of using the word jaw-dropping, you know? I mean, the, word, the, the double word jaw-dropping, people can sort of imagine feeling that. It, it makes it more powerful. Visual, of course, means you can see it. The thing about writers is we get tempted because we're always dealing in ideas and we have a very rich inner life, even beyond the visual inner life, we get tempted to use conceptual language when visual language would work much better. I'll, I'll give you an example of both. So here's an example of conceptual language. He resorted to physical violence with his opponent. We know what it means, but say the same thing in visual language. He punched the other man in the face. Mm. Okay, much more visual and much more impactful. I mean, not just the physical punch, but the words. Okay, <laughs> vivid. By vivid, I mean describing, stirring, describing and stirring intense, immediate emotion. So here are two contrasting examples. Here's non-vivid. He experienced increased exhilaration as the equestrian contest approached a favorable conclusion. Excuse me while I yawn. Um, vivid. The thrill of victory coursed through his veins as he saw his horse was going to win. Okay. That wasn't for Dan Kennedy, but Dan, if you're listening, I'm thinking of you. Okay. Um, so again, those are the four copywriting secrets for the National Enquirer. Use them and they'll make your copy better. Again, they are short words, visceral, visual, and vivid. Let's go ahead and practice what we preach. We did tell them what we're going to tell them. Tell them. Let's, uh, let's recap real quick and tell them what we told them. Sure. Okay. So the first thing to say beyond the sad decline of the National Enquirer is that the headlines are outrageous and very attention-getting, but they're very thinly connected to the copy. However, as a copywriter, you might want to take a little more responsibility um, with the connection so as not to come across as deceptive and run into compliance problems or just the problem of clickbait where people feel unsatisfied after they invest in reading your copy yeah that's true too um you, you don't want to get your customers feeling that way okay second thing is the stories were written usually around one idea one fact one incident one experience one insight one something and then There'd be some repetition, but it, there'd be enough variation on uh, what was said uh, in the way it was said, rather, so that it would be interesting. 
we've done episodes on coming up with a big idea for your sales copy. And that kind of ties into that same notion as well. So go back and, and do a search on copywriters podcast for the big idea. And you can kind of get a, a clearer um, path to being able to do this in your own copy. That's a really good point because a lot of people think of a big idea as um, another way of saying the hook or the headline. But if the big idea threads through the entire copy, much better. And I've seen people do it both ways, frankly. So you're, you're not wrong if you only think of it as hook or headline, but extend it all the way through. Third thing is the, the four um, secrets, short words, visceral, visual, and vivid. How, how is my play acting? <laughs> it was fantastic for the YouTube viewers. For our <laughs> YouTube viewers, I acted, and for our listeners, I acted out visual, visceral, visual, and vivid. All right, David, another fantastic episode. If you're just listening on the podcast, you might want to go and see if you can find David on YouTube because he posts these videos there as well. And if you're an audio-only type of person, Make sure that you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app and you can catch uh, more episodes over at the Copywriters Podcast web website, which is copywriterspodcast.com. David, anything else before we're out of here? No, um, just want to thank listeners for sticking with us and we've got lots of good stuff planned for the coming year. Awesome. And it is the beginning of 2021. So uh, let's, let's wish each other a, a happy new year and uh, move forward with that. And happy new year. And thank goodness 2020 is over. Huh? <laughs> All right, David, until next time, man, we'll catch you later. Catch you later. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app so we can get into ears of more listeners. Thank you. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.